And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy620, or you're listening to the archive over at the podcast, investinghope.com, or TuneIn, or Google Play, Amazon Podcast, wherever podcasts are found, iTunes, you can find this show. And boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. You know, 2020, it's getting kind of tired. Everybody's saying, oh, this 2020 this and 2020 that and the new normal and and all this. And I'm going to talk about that toward the end of the show. But man, oh man, oh man, we are like 30 something days away from the election. And not only have we seen a pandemic, not only have we seen the economy come to a screeching halt, not only have we seen... Uh, riots and looting and protests from people from all walks of life. Not only are, have we seen churches close down and then open back up and then close down again and then open back up. and Not only all of that, but now, in the election year, we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying last week. And so now, in the middle of all of that, we're going to have ourselves a Supreme Court fight. Will Trump nominate somebody? Will he not nominate somebody? Uh, spoiler alert, he's going to nominate somebody. Will the Senate confirm? Will they not confirm? Spoiler alert, it appears the Senate is going to... Uh, with something I've been talking about the last few weeks, talking about the Biden-Harris campaign. Now, now some of you are listening and going, now why... Why does it seem like you were talking a lot about politics as of late? Look, we're 30-something days from the election. It's important. I was on a Zoom call today with, uh, with other Pregnancy Center folks and, and talking about the importance of this election. Now, am I going to sit here and tell you this is the most important election of my lifetime? I'm not going to tell you that. That's for you to decide. And you know why? Because I've literally heard that my entire life, every four years. I've been told this is the most important election of your lifetime. So I don't know. I think that's kind of uh, played out. But it's an important election. Every election is important. You should be involved. You should be engaged. You should vote. You should do those things. But I will say that it's important to know who the candidates are. It's important to know their platforms. And what we have seen over the last four years in a Trump-Biden or a Trump Pence administration, a Trump-Biden administration, wouldn't that be, that would be something. A Trump-Pence administration, as we've seen, uh, pro-life values put forth. We have seen uh, Israel, uh, peace in the Middle East. We've seen the, the embassy move to Jerusalem there in Israel. We've seen uh, a lot of things happen. We've seen one of the most robust economies ever in the history of this country. Uh, we've seen that, that very robust economy come to a screeching halt. And then we've seen unemployment at record numbers. And then we've seen unemployment already being cut in half. I mean, we're almost back. Even with everything that's going on, we're almost back. So we've seen a lot. And, and what we've seen over the last four years is governing, whether you agree with it or not, we have seen a record to show what a Trump administration will look like. So the question is, what does a Biden administration look like? Can you look at Obama-Biden and go, okay, that's what a Biden administration will look like? Can you look at Biden's last 47 years in politics and say, this is what a President Biden would look like? Well, what we do know is he picked 
Kamala Harris as his running mate. Now, what do we know about her? Well, what we know about her is she was attorney general in California. While in that seat, she, uh, she attacked pregnancy centers openly, aggressively. She attacked David Aladen. She brought charges against him for the hidden camera videos that he, he had in Planned Parenthood where they were harvesting and selling baby body parts. Uh, she did all of that. She attacked him. She also kept people in jail that, need, that should have been out of jail. Uh, she refused to let attorneys get to DNA tests and, and DNA evidence that they needed to, to equip, uh, equip their, their clients. But what we also know is she's one of the most pro-abortion senators this country has ever seen. Now you're thinking, well, of course you're going to say that, Andrew, because she's got a D beside her name and she's a liberal and she's of the left and you're not going to like her no matter what. Well, no. Here, here's what I know is you, you got to think about the company that they keep. So I would point you to a, a post that Planned Parenthood made concerning voting and, 2020, and the 2020 election. And they titled this, this post, Nine Reasons to Love Kamala Harris. And it starts by saying throughout her career, Harris has been a defender of reproductive rights. That's abortion. Now, see, they use reproductive rights, but let's just omit that and say reproductive rights equals abortion. So Harris has been a defender of abortion and health care. Her addition to the ticket makes clear that in the White House, a Biden administration would not only protect abortion rights, but also advance and expand them. So the largest abortion giant in the country just said, with the addition of Harris to the Biden administration, the Biden administration would not only protect abortion rights, but would also advance and expand them. See, I'm not making this, uh, this stuff up. These, this is coming from the folks that are going to support her. And if you remember back to the Obama administration, Planned Parenthood was in the Oval Office when Cecile Richards was, was leading that organization. She was in the Oval Office Dozens and dozens of times. She had the ear of the president. So we're not just saying in a, in a conspiracy kind of way, oh, they're going to attack pro-lifers, they're going to attack pregnancy centers. No, the reality is we can look at the record of, of Kamala Harris. We can look at a record in California. We can look at a record in, in not voting for the, uh, the Protection Act that would simply protect those that, that survived abortions. We, we can look at her record and see that not only is she pro-choice, she is pro-abortion. And Joe Biden adding her to the ticket tells us all we need to know. You see, so, so people are going to say, well, Joe Biden's moderate on abortion. And I talked about this last week. And you can listen to last week's show if you want. But he's not moderate on abortion. Look, I'm just going to say it out loud. If you claim to be pro-life personally, but not politically or not when it comes to legislation, then you are not pro-life. That's like saying, well, I'm, I'm personally against drunk driving, but, you know, I don't think there should be a law to, to say one way or the other. I don't want to put my beliefs on somebody else. That's nonsense. And so Planned Parenthood goes further. Here's their, here's their rundown. They, they say that, that Harris is breaking barriers. As the first black woman and the first Asian American to join the presidential ticket of a major party, Harris lives and has thrived at the intersection of multiple identities. She's also the child of first-generation immigrants through her mother and a Jamaican lineage through her father. 
Two and three, she, they say defending abortion access. So this is what Planned Parenthood does. They start with identity politics. And then immediately, two and three, they go to her defense of abortion access. When Texas enacted targeted restrictions on abortion providers to block the safe legal access to abortion in violation, their words, in violation of Roe v. Wade, Harris, the Attorney General of California, joined a brief that urged the U.S. Supreme Court to protect abortion access. The name of the case was Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, and Planned Parenthood says that they won that one. As a presidential candidate, Harris proposed a plan that would require some states to get preclearance from the U.S. Department of Justice before abortion restrictions could go into effect. Harris said this, quote, We cannot tolerate going backward and not understanding women have agency. Women have value. Women have authority to make decisions about their own lives and their own bodies. Now, now listen to that. How many little, little female babies have been aborted since 1973? What about their value? What about their bodies? What about their lives? You see, it, it, I get frustrated because no one calls them on this. You cannot say women have value and then out of the same mouth and at the same, in the same sentence say, because of that value, you get to end the life of another human. You, you can't say that. Because at that point, you don't, you're not giving value to anyone. And it's a separate body. It's not the same body. That baby in the womb has its own brain. It has its own organs, its own heartbeat, its own blood type, its own DNA. And again, you know how I know this? Because I'm sitting here today and you're sitting there listening. And everyone that I came across coming to the studio today points to the fact that they were their own person inside the womb. You see, if it was your body, then I wouldn't be sitting here because it, my mom couldn't have produced me. It, it, that doesn't even make sense. When, I, when my mom was pregnant, there was her body and then there was my body growing inside of her body. Not the same body. They said, number four, she advocates access to birth control. You see, everything has to do with abortion and preventing pregnancy at all costs. And then five and six, fighting for health equity. Harris's work, Harris's work to address the health inequities and systematic bias that contribute to high rates of maternal mortality in black communities. Saying that black mothers are facing a health crisis that is driven in part by implicit bias in our healthcare system. We must take action to address this issue and we must do, do it with the sense of urgency it des deserves. She doesn't talk about Planned Parenthood opening up shop across the country in minority neighborhoods and making millions of dollars off the back of the vulnerable. She, she doesn't talk about that or those inequities, clearly. Then number seven, they said, protecting the federal courts. As a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Harris subjected Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh to tough scrutiny of his record on abortion and freedoms and asked one question that left Kavanaugh near speechless. You know, she also said a lot of lies about Justice Kavanaugh. If you'll remember, the Kavanaugh hearings were atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. The man had to bring out his yearbook. His yearbook. And had to explain what, what was said in a yearbook when he was 17 years old. What was signed in a yearbook 
That's where we are in today's political climate. And number five, they say dancing and drumlines. Number nine is dancing and drumlines. You see, Planned Parenthood couldn't even come up with truly nine things. They had to couple, abortion was two and three, fighting for health equity was five and six, and number nine was dancing and drumlines. That's why you should get behind and support a Biden-Harris ticket. Folks, I, I can't tell you how to vote. I can't tell you what to do with that. And, and, and I'm not going to. But what I can tell you is it's important to know the platforms that they stand on. And in this election, you have one, one platform that is very clear to stand against and in opposition of, of babies in the womb. That's the truth of the matter. It wouldn't take a lot of research to figure out which one that is. Know who they sit with. Know them by who they keep company with. The abortion lobby were, were tickled to death to hear Harris join the Biden ticket. Why? Because she is adamantly pro-abortion. Look, and, and I know people will say, well, well, you can't use that language. She's pro-choice. She's just for choice. No, she's not. She's pro-abortion. Access to abortion at whatever it costs. And so that's not what we need. That's not going to move this country forward. That's not a value system we should be proud of. And so I, I wanted to start the show with that because I think it's important that we understand when some people throw the term moderate around, I don't even know if moderate exists today. It certainly doesn't exist in the current political landscape. And so a Biden-Harris ticket would not be moderate on abortion. They would be the opposite. We'll talk more when we... You're always happening Seeking you will find Visible in all things I just have to fix my eyes You're always pleasant You're the wind and you're the sky So now we shift gears and we talk about the SCOTUS, Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, uh, I think it was Friday. I saw the news come across and my, oh my. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful I don't have Twitter anymore, deleted it out of my life. So I, I, was, <laughs> I would have been glued to it all weekend. You know what else I did? I deleted Facebook off my phone. So I can't even access Facebook easily on my phone now. Because I'm trying to relieve the stress, lower that blood pressure down, be in a healthy state of mind, be present with my family. But, but when, I, when I got the news, I had some people text me, uh-oh, what does this mean? What does that mean? Look, the reality is, uh, whether we agree with, with RBG or not, she bears the image of our God. Uh, I pray for her family. Uh, she was a, uh, I disagree with her pretty much on everything. Uh, but, but from all accounts, she was a great mom, good wife. Uh, great, uh, an amazing grandmother, all of those things. And those things matter. And that character matters. And it seems like she was good to her family. From a political standpoint and from her, her positions on 
uh, on a lot of things. I did not agree with her. But one thing that I, that I do know is her and Anthony Scalia were real good friends. And you remember Scalia passed away back in 16. And we're going to talk about that here in a second and what that looks like and, and what are the, uh, how, how can we make comparisons with what happened in 2016 versus what's happening now when Obama was in the, in, in the White House. And so Scalia and, and RBG were, were really good friends, even though they saw the world through very different lenses. They saw the Constitution through very different lenses. But they were good friends. Isn't that amazing? There is something we can learn from that. But as we think about what's to happen now, what have you already heard? Well, what you've already heard is there's no way, there's no way the Senate should, should confirm or even hear uh, of a nomination. Why? Because it's an election year and you got to wait until the election is over in order to do that. And, and what are they saying on the news and, and on the cable news outlets and on social media? You're hearing people say, well, well, if you'll remember... McConnell wouldn't even have a hearing for Merrick Garland. When Obama nominated Garland to replace Scalia, McConnell said, we're not going to have a hearing until the election's over. Why? Well, he, he made the argument that Obama is a lame duck president. When the election's over between Trump and Hillary, then Trump or Hillary will get to nominate the, uh, the replacement for Scalia, and then we will have hearings on that nominee. Well, and people get all up in arms and they're so angry about it. And how could they do that? And where's the precedent for that? Look, the reality, folks, is elections have consequences. And in, in 2016, you had a Democratic president, but you had a Senate controlled by the Republicans. So why in the world, from a political standpoint, why would the Republicans go, yeah, we'll confirm your nominee? Well, of course, they're not going to do that. And what you have now, fast forward to 2020, is you have a Republican president and a Republican Senate, and you have McConnell saying 100% we're going uh, to have hearings and we're going to have a vote on confirming this nominee of the president. Now, what's the difference there? The difference is the party's in control. If the, if, listen, folks, don't, don't let people tell you, uh, don't, don't be naive in this, Okay. If the shoe was on the other foot, if the shoe were on the other foot, we would be seeing the exact same thing. You know how I know that? Because what were we being told in 2016? Go back. Look at the tape. Joe Biden, Obama, host of Democratic senators. What were they saying? We must nominate a replacement now. We don't have to wait till the election is over. We must nominate someone now. We must, now ha we must have hearings now. Chuck Schumer saying, we must have hearings now. This is what the Constitution requires of this body. Let's have the hearings. That's what they were saying in 2016. And of course, the Republicans were saying, no, we don't have to do that. And now all of it's changed. 2020, 2020, you have the Democrats saying, Whoa, 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 whoa. We must stop. We, we can't have a vote now. We're 30-something days out from election. We can't have a vote now. And the Republicans are saying, oh, no, we're absolutely going to have a vote. So why is that? What, what can we look at? What does history tell us about that? There's a great article over at National Review. It's really long. I'm not going to read it all, but I am going to point out uh, some things that, that, that will help shed some light on what's happening to show 
that in fact there, are, there is a precedent here. Now, you're not going to hear about that on cable news because there's an agenda and there's a narrative they wish to push. Or they'll say, well, well RBG's last, uh, her dying wish was that her seat would not be filled. Look, I get dying wishes. And, and um, I, I pray, I really do. I, I really pray that her last thoughts were not about politics. I really do. Man, what, I hope that I'm not lying on my deathbed making wishes about politics. What, what, a, what a sad state. But I wasn't there. I don't know what was happening. But I will say this. In 2016, you know what RBG said? We must have a vote and replace Scalia before the election. That's what she said in 2016. It's funny how things change when the party power changes. That's politics. It's messy. You know, people are saying, oh, it's hypocritical. It's this, it's that. No, it's politics. It's gross. It's messy. That, that's, that's why we have elections. It's the same reason why right now you're hearing folks say, well, if, if they do this and they have a vote and they confirm a Supreme Court nominee and they put her on the court or put him on the court, and if we take control in, in the next election, we're going to stack the court. You know, they're, they're saying these things. We're going to add more states to the union. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You have people, you have AOC coming out over the weekend. You better be prepared for a fight. Like, and she's saying like an actual fight in the streets. That's a problem. But, but what's, the, what's history say? 19 times between 1796 and 1968, presidents have sought to fill a Supreme Court vacancy in a presidential election while their party controlled the Senate. 19 times. 10 of those nominations came before the election. Nine of the 10 were successful, the only failure being the bipartisan filibuster of the ethically challenged uh, Abe Fortas as Chief Justice in 1968. Of course, we all remember the great Abe Fort. I'm kidding. I don't, I don't know who that is. Justices to enter the court under these circumstances included such legal luminaries as Louis Brandes and Benjamin Cardoza. George Washington made two nominations in 1796, one of them a Chief Justice replacing a failed nominee the prior year. It was his last year in office, and the Adams-Jefferson race to, to replace him was bitter and divisive. Woodrow Wilson made two nominations in 1916, one of them to replace Charles Evans Hughes, who had resigned from the court to run for president against Wilson. Wilson was in a tight re-election campaign that was not decided until California finished counting votes a week after election day. Three of the presidents who got election year nominees confirmed Benjamin Harrison in 1892, William Howard Taft in 1912, and Herbert Hoover in 1932 were on their way to losing re-election. In Taft's and Hoover's cases by overwhelming margins, but they still had the Senate, so they got their nominees through. Nine times, presidents have made nominations. No, no, let me stop there for a second. So what that means is when the party that controls the White House also controls the Senate, what you saw was the vast majority of the times a nominee was made, a vote was held, and a confirmation was, was done, Okay. So when, when the same party had the Senate and the, and the White House, you pretty much saw, vast majority of the time, you saw a nominee and you saw that nominee get confirmed. Now listen to this. Nine times, presidents have made nominations after the election in a lame duck session. These include some storied nominations, such as John Adams picking Chief Justice John Marshall in 1801 and Abraham Lincoln selecting Chief Justice uh, Salmon P. Chase in 1864. 
Of the nine, the only one that did not succeed was Washington's 1793 nomination of William Patterson, which was withdrawn for technical reasons and resubmitted and confirmed the first day of the next Congress. Two of Andrew Jackson's nominees on the last day of his term were confirmed a few days later without quibbles. In no case did the Senate reject a nominee or refuse to act on a nomination. Why would they? Three of the presidents who filled lame duck vacancies, Adams, Martin, Van Buren, and Benjamin Harrison, had already lost re-election. The Adams precedent is the most famous. Back when people read basic American history in school, everybody knew about Adams and the Federalists in the Senate stocking the courts with mid- midnight judges. That is part of the story, the first peaceful transfer of power after democratic election in history. The crown jewel of the midnight judges, judges Chief Justice Marshall, went on to become the most influential jurist in American history, entrenching the Federalist Party theories of Constitution for many years after the party ceased to exist. And the article goes on and on and on. And, and so what we've seen, the bottom line is this. If a president and the Senate, Senate agree on a Supreme Court nominee, timing has never stopped them. By tradition, only when the vote, voters have elected a president and a Senate majority from different parties has the fact of a looming presidential election mattered. When there is no dispute between the branches, there is no need to ask the voters to resolve one. That's just the reality. Again, if, if President Trump was in the White House and the Democrats controlled the Senate, then yeah, they, they probably would say, and rightly so, yeah, we're not going to confirm, we're not even going to have hearings on your appointee because we're going to wait till the election is over in the hopes that our guy wins the election. That's politics. But President Trump is saying, look, the reason why I'm here, the, the reason why a large part of, of the American populace voted for me was based on Supreme Court judges alone. I know a lot of people that held their nose, pulled the lever for, for Donald Trump, because of the Supreme Court. And so that's where we are. When we come back, what I want to do is is look at who the possible nominees will be. And I think you're going to find it interesting. There's three of them, all three female. We'll talk about it more when we come back. Fraction, my whole heart and giving you the crumbs left. On the corner table of my busy schedule, the daisies smell so nice, but the pollen hurts my eyes. My friend, locking eyes with So the question days. now is, who will Trump nominate? Right, Trump put out a list at the uh, back during the election in 2016 of... of uh, judges that he would at least have on a short list and a lot of conservatives saw that list and thought okay I can go vote for this person now I can vote for this man now because I approve of this list and so who who's he going to nominate he has come out and said by the end by the end of the week Friday Saturday he's going to uh, name the next just justice and and what we've heard today even come out is that uh Let's see, what we know since, since the death of RBG, you've had uh, Murkowski, you've had Collins, who both are Republican senators, say we don't think we should have a vote on a nominee. They didn't say they wouldn't vote for the nominee. They just said we don't think we should have a vote. So that doesn't mean that tells us how they will vote. We, some of the holdovers, some of the ones we might have been a little concerned about, Lamar Alexander, you know, he's taken, he's our, our senator here uh, one of our senators here in Tennessee, and this is his, he's retiring. And so some folks were like, well, I don't know. I don't know if Lamar will stand strong. Lamar put out a statement saying he, he would 
uh, absolutely vote, and he believes that a, a hearing should be had, that the Constitution requires that of the Senate. Uh, the other big one was Mitt Romney. What is Mitt Romney going to do? You know, if you'll remember, Mitt Romney actually voted uh, to impeach the president. And so no one really knew where Mitt would stand. And Mitt put out a statement today saying he believes that uh, he will make a vote based not on fairness, but on the Constitution. And if the judge, if the nominee meets those requirements, then he will vote in the affirmative. So what that means is even, even if Mitt voted no, and you had Murkowski, Collins, and, and Romney a no, you have a 50-50 tie in the Senate, Democrats to Republicans. And then guess what? The vice president of the United States breaks that tie. Well, you know how he's going to vote. So the, the nominee would be confirmed. Look, these used to not be party line votes, but, but now moving forward, I'm pretty confident Supreme Court justice nominees, it, it's going to be party line vote. And so with Romney coming out today and saying, I, I, will, I will vote one way or the other, we, we have to assume that if, if the, the nominee meets his constitutional credentials, then, then he would vote in the affirmative. But even if Romney votes uh, against that nominee, again, that would put it at a 50-50 tie, and the vice president of the United States, who's a Republican, would break that tie. Lindsey Graham has come out and said the Judicial Committee is going to have hearings. Ted Cruz has come out and said we think we need to move forward, and the list goes on and on and on. So who, who will he nominate? I'm going to start right now with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And she was my pick back during the Kavanaugh uh, fiasco. And, and it's been said that, that this was Trump's first pick. And McConnell argued that, look, you, you probably need to go with Kavanaugh. He's more middle ground. Uh, it'll probably be a li little easier confirmation process. Uh, let's save Amy Coney Barrett for, for a later, later uh, appointing. And boy, were they wrong. <laughs> that, that was not a, uh, a smooth process nonetheless but but he Kavanaugh did get confirmed and now sits on uh on the court so Amy Comey Coney Barrett who is she she was appointed to the seventh circuit in Chicago in 2017 prior to that she taught constitutional law and other legal subjects at Notre Dame beginning in 2002 she's also clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia as well as Justice Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court that's a big deal she and her husband, Jesse, have seven children, including two adopted from Haiti, and one of her children uh, has Down syndrome. Uh, one notable moment in her 2017 confirmation hearings occurred in an exchange with Senator Dianne Feinstein over Barrett's Roman Catholic faith. Feinstein questioned Barrett as to whether she could separate her faith from her duties as a judge, and this statement from Feinstein followed. Why is it that so many of us on, the side, on this side have this very uncomfortable feeling that that, you know, dogma and law are two different things. And I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in your case, Professor, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to a big issue that large numbers of people have fought for years in this country. Feinstein's quote, the dogma lives loudly within you, end quote, criticism raised constitutional issues at the time since Article 6, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution forbids religious tests for federal officials. Barrett was confirmed in a 55-43 Senate vote, and Barrett is 48 years old. The, the next candidate, again, my pick, who I would want to see, is Amy Coney Barrett. That is who I want to see. 
I want I want her to be on the one thing. She's been in the spotlight before. She's taken the hard questions from Feinstein and others, and, and so let's let her have that. Let's let her have that moment. She's a mother of seven. She's had her baby and her dreams. She's adopted babies. Uh, she has a kid with special needs. I mean, uh, if they attack her the way they attack Kavanaugh, they won't just lose the Supreme Court. They'll lose all the elections. Like, they will be so far out in front of their skis on this if they do this that they will, uh, they will lose the election in a big way. The next person that's on the list, that appears, is Barbara LaGoya. Judge LaGoya was appointed the 11th Circuit in December 2019. Prior to that, she spent all of 2019 as a justice of Florida Supreme Court, appointed to that position by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. She was the first Hispanic woman and first woman of Cuban descent to serve on the court. Prior to joining Florida's high court, she has served as a judge on the state appellate court since 2006. LaGoya earned her law degree at Columbia Law School in 1992. She worked for a private law firm in general and commercial litigation before being named Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida in 03, where she prosecuted many cases as part of the civil major crimes and appellate section of that office. LaGoya's Senate confirmation vote was 80 to 15. Judge LaGoya is married to attorney Paul Huck Jr., and they have three daughters. LaGoya is 52 years old. And from all that I've heard, she is spot on, and uh, I've even heard somebody say she is 100% in turning over Roe v. Wade. And so that's a good one as well. The next person on the list, Allison Jones Rushing. Rushing was appointed to the Fourth Circuit in 2019, a magna cum laude graduate of Duke University Law School in 07. She went on to clerk for then-Judge Neil Gorsuch when he sat on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, then for Judge David Centelli of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. After joining a private law firm for a year, she then clerked for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ding, ding, ding. That's a good one. During the 2010-11 term, she then rejoined her law firm until her appointment to the Fourth Circuit. During her confirmation hearings, Rushing was asked about her tries, her ties to the Alliance Defending Freedom, a public interest law firm that defends freedom of speech and religion in nation's courts. She is part of ADF's Blackstone Legal Fellowship program, which prepares Christian law students for careers marked by integrity, excellence, and leadership. Rushing was confirmed by the Senate in a vote 53 to 44, and she is two years older than me. She's 38. Wow. I'm uh, on radio on Joy 620, and she may be the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States. What a world we live in. Uh, but here's the thing. All three of them, all three of them would be solid picks. Uh, I think the, the way to go, the one that's been vetted the most, is Amy Coney Barrett. That's the one that's been vetted the most. She was, I think, on Trump's top of his list, and then Kavanaugh squeaked by and, and was the nomination uh, a few years ago. But, but I think the reality is uh, Amy Coney Barrett is the way to go with this. Look, and, and even if you want to get into the weeds of politics, Trump needs suburban voters, suburban mom voters to be in particular like like that's what he needs to be specific he needs suburban mom voters and if they put amy coney barrett on the stand and they attack her the way they attack kavanaugh politically that would be malpractice for the democrats to do because what that's going to show everybody watching is oh is this what you think about us is this what you think about moms that work is this what you think about us? So be praying for all of that that's going on. We'll see what happens. But I, my prediction today, if I had to guess, 
would be at the end of the week, President Trump comes out and he has Amy Coney Barrett beside him. And he says, this is my next nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States of America. We'll see what happens. We'll talk about it next week, but I'll, I'll talk to you more when we come back. What is true? So I want to end the show today with uh, something that I wrote this week. I've had a lot of time to think over the last seven months. And, and I've been wanting to put those thoughts down, and I just haven't. I haven't been in the right frame of mind. And so yesterday, I was sitting at my desk, and I already made notes in my head and notes on my phone over the weekend. And yesterday, I put those thoughts down. And so I want to end the show by sharing those with you. And I simply titled this, Hope in 2020. And you can find it at investinghope.com. Uh, you can find it on our Facebook page and, and other places as well. Uh, and, and here's some thoughts. Anyone else tired of hearing phrases like, we must pivot, a new normal, adapt, virtual, put your mask on, take your mask off, let me take your temperature, or it's been a strange year? Yeah, me too. We have all used these phrases in some way or another over the past seven months as this pandemic has littered our news feeds, our televisions, and our daily lives. There is no doubt that this pandemic has altered lives, families, and businesses forever. Families have buried loved ones. Spouses have watched via FaceTime as their loved ones struggled in the hospital. And some businesses have closed forever. Sure, there has been a great deal of negativity, hurt, and chaos over the past few months. But today, today, I want to point us to some good news in 2020. Or dare I say, some hope in 2020. I've had a lot of time to think and reflect over the past seven months. During this time of reflection, God has consistently reminded me of his goodness and sovereignty and calmness and in chaos. This gentle reminder has brought peace over my soul as, I as I'm reminded that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You see, I love Psalm 46 for a number of reasons, but mainly that first line, that the God of the universe cares enough about me to be my refuge and my strength in times of trouble. There is hope for you today. We know turmoil and chaos will come and go, but God remains steadfast in his love and care for us. I pray we would let that truth marinate in our souls. In light of that psalm in our current national environment, I want to now point out some areas where hope is found today, even in the midst of pandemics, elections, and Supreme Court justice nominees. I think we can all admit that these difficult times can take a toll on one's soul. It's exhausting. It feels like this year has had a little bit of everything to bring about some of the most uneasy times in our communities and our nation. I feel like everyone is on edge and waiting to step over. Have you sensed that? Maybe, maybe you see the edge in your own life and you are watching your toe inch ever so closely to falling off that edge. I get it. I've been there. That's why I deleted Twitter and recently deleted Facebook off my phone. I sense that toe of mine inching and at times sprinting to the edge. This isn't sustainable. This mindset is detrimental to our health, our family, and our relationships. We were created for something far greater than nail-biting at every headline that comes our way. It was this conviction in my own life that God, I believe, told me to look up and around. You see, when my head is down looking at a screen, I'm missing the hope around me. Some have argued that 2020 is a wash and needs to, be, needs to meet a quick death. I would caution you in making that assessment. For someone, 2020 is a wedding anniversary. That's right, someone made a covenant to their spouse this year smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. For someone else, 2020 was the year the prodigal returned home, beat an addiction, or made a simple phone call home. For others, this was the year the Lord showed up and saved their lives for eternity. I have no doubt that in 2020... Uh, that 2020 was the year someone got the call from a doctor telling them that their scans were clear 
and that they are officially cancer-free. You see, there is much to hope for, even when things look pretty bleak, if we would just be willing to look up and take a second look. At Hope, we have had to adapt and overcome just like everyone else in 2020, but this hasn't changed our mission. Sure, our protocols and days may look a little different, but the work continues. Our doors have remained open, and we have seen a, been a witness to a mom seeing their baby for the first time, dads fighting back tears of joy as they come to grips with their new reality, and life spared because Hope was just a phone call away. It's easy to pile onto a year that has seen so much turmoil. I know because I've done my share of piling on, but let me encourage you today, or even challenge you, to make the choice to look up and recognize all the God-sized goodness that is still occurring in your midst. Meditate on these truths today as you seek to love and care for those around you. I promise, if you spend your time in, the ty- in this type of mindset, you will never regret it. Love better today than you did yesterday and acknowledge our refuge and strength is found in the God of the universe. Thank you for loving us at Hope and for caring for those we have the pleasure of serving. So are you doing that? Are you looking up and looking around? Take those times to do that. This morning even. Last night I was, I was laying, I was tucking my daughter into bed and she said, in the morning I'm making cinnamon toast with mommy. Can you stay and eat breakfast? And I was like, well, I got to get to work and, and normally I just grab breakfast and go. But this morning I got up and I just felt it in my soul. I need to stay and eat breakfast with my little girl. And you know what I did? I stayed and I ate breakfast. I ate that cinnamon toast, sat down beside her and enjoyed breakfast with the family. I was a little late to work, but I took time to be present. Are we taking time to be present, even in the midst of the chaos around us? Let's do that. I'll talk to you next week. But I will